Hi there, welcome to the Stockholmer podcast with Maddie Savage, bringing you the personal stories behind Sweden's innovative capital in 15 minute slices. I'm very passionate and I'm more or less like obsessed with my company. You know, that's both a curse, but also that's one of my strengths as well. And I've never felt more alive than I do doing what I do right now. That's Elsa Bernadotte, who's on a mission to rescue leftover meals as the co-founder and chief operating officer at one of Sweden's fastest growing food apps, Karma. The company was listed among the hottest Stockholm startups by Wired magazine earlier this year, and it's attracted more than a million dollars in investment. Age 29, Elsa's already made one successful business exit, selling her first venture, a frozen snack startup called Pop Fruits. And fun fact, she's distantly related to the Swedish king. The Stockholmer. We are at Kitchen and Table in the Kungsholmen neighbourhood of Stockholm. This is one of the restaurants uh, that Karma works with. They're just setting up for the day, chefs chopping things up in the kitchen. We've just had the cleaners uh, coming through. So a very uh, uh, vibrant place uh, around us. We'll talk about your background in a moment, uh, Elsa, but first of all, just tell us what exactly Karma does here. So, as you mentioned, Kitchen and Table is one of our partners, and uh, they're a partner in Karma. And what they do is that they can sell their surplus food through Karma, and then consumers can buy that food through our app at a discounted price. And then they pick up the food at, uh, at location as takeaway. So this is one of how many locations now around Sweden that are offering this? Uh, we have about 1,000 locations. We're in 30 cities in Sweden. You've grown really rapidly and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But first, let's just go back a little bit. So straight out of uni, your first job uh, wasn't working in food, wasn't working in the tech scene. It was working at Chanel. So something um, very different. Um, what drew you to that and then drew you out of that? I applied to a lot of different jobs. I just knew I didn't want to go into banking and management consulting. I saw their ad, I liked their way of expressing the role and when I met them I really liked the person that was going to be my boss. I felt like she was really, she was smart and driven and uh, yeah, we, we got a good rapport and for me that is, that is really important, like if the culture is right, I will usually thrive. But less than a year later you came up with your first startup business mm-hmm. which was connected to ice lollies, how did that come about? <laughs> I knew that I wanted to start my own business. So for me, that was like a trial and error year when I actually tried to start different, uh, a couple of different ventures and none of them really, um, you know, fall through. Um, but then I finally decided that, uh, you know, there's no perfect timing. So I decided, okay, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go for one of my ideas. I usually say like the best of my bad ideas. Um, and I'm going to go for that and we will see where that will take me. Like that will force me into something and that will take me to the next step. Um, so that was basically how, how it came about. And then I contacted an old friend of mine. I texted him and I said, like, I have this idea and I think we should meet and talk. And we met uh, the day after and I pitched to him like this, the best of my bad ideas. Um, and he was like, yeah, yeah, that, I mean, it's good, but I have an idea as well. And so he pitched the, the lollipop idea or like frozen fruit idea as a snack. And I loved it. Like from the very second, I was like, oh, I love that. That's it. And yeah, we shook hands. And the day after I quit my job at Chanel. So give us a quick summary of that journey. 
Wow. Um, so it took us about a year to set up the company and put up the production line and sell to resellers and put up the website and all the branding and packaging. And we launched about a year after uh, after that day when we met the first time. And two years after that, after launching, we sold the company to uh, a British company. For how much? Um, good question. Uh, it's not something we usually go out with. But it, it was... We're really happy about the whole journey and it was a good, um, I mean, we didn't really plan to make an exit or sell the company, um, but the opportunity arose and then it felt right. But it obviously left you with a chunk of money to then be able to go on and launch Karma. Uh, I wouldn't really say that, to be honest, but it was a good deal. So how did Karma come about? So basically, right after Pop Fruits, which was the name of my first company, I knew that I wanted to start a new company again and I was looking for new co-founders. I love working in teams and I also knew that I wanted to get into, you know, more of a digital solution and my current co-founders that I co-founded Karma with, they heard about me and uh, they, yeah, they reached out and said like, we're about to start a company called Karma, um, we should talk, uh, which we did. and. We hit it off straight away. We were supposed to, you know, have a chat for an hour. We were talking for several hours. And it just, yeah, it was right from then and there. But the initial premise wasn't so linked to the sustainability mm. aspect that, that operates here at, at, at this restaurant and, and so many others. No. Talk us through how that, that also kind of shifted. Yeah, so the initial idea was Karma was a deal platform where we aggregated all kind of deals and became like a bridge from offline to online so like physical stores could upload their deals uh, into the platform and people could find them and when we launched the product we got a lot of you know a lot of users and a lot of deals but it was also quite clear that we were spreading ourselves a little bit thin in the platform because it was so many different kind of deals that it became little bit unclear for the users like who is this relevant for is it if I want discounts on clothes or if I'm gonna buy you know three avocados for two at a grocery store Um, and then we had you know did a little bit of soul searching within the team and like look at the data like okay so what is working and we saw three things basically we saw that uh, people loved the deals correlated to food they loved when it was like a short time period like a flash sale so they got this fear of missing out and we also saw that restaurants had to upload deals um, so we took those three insights and like can we do something with this and realize that quite quickly about what we're actually looking at is for on the restaurant side it's food waste um, is that a problem <laughs> and we fairly quickly realized oh my god it's gigantic it's huge and no one is really solving it today and we actually have a platform where we could use this you know the solution of adding um, offers uh, for a short period of time for restaurants to, you know, to reduce surplus food. So that's the way how it came about, and that was in May 2016. So why do you think the timing was right for this? I think it's an increasing interest among the society and not only the food industry uh, about this problem. Like sustainability has become. Uh, an increasing important issue or subject on like the political agenda but all I mean also in like society in general but another thing is that I think today we also have the technology that is you know advanced enough but also um, easy enough easy to use uh, that makes this possible and we're also 
um, you know, both the food industry but also the consumers are used to using digital tools um, in a way we weren't a couple of years ago. What about the food industry per se? I mean, mm. it's three years since I moved to Stockholm and even in that time there seems to have been a, a huge boom in people actually going and eating out, new restaurants popping up all the time. Stockholm in particular is becoming more of a global destination for food and then you've got all the food delivery apps as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, th I think we will keep on seeing an increasing uh, trend in those aspects. And that's why we really need to find solutions that make it makes it able for us to actually resource optimize. Uh, we are becoming very used to, you know, the convenience, uh, just in time purchases, getting food delivered. And it, it you know, that that puts a huge pressure on our resources and we need to be smart about how we optimize them. I'm going to ask you about your background. You are distantly related to the Swedish royal family and this seems to get mentioned in every single article that's written about you. And first of all, I want to know how you feel about that. I don't feel that much, really. Um, it is what it is. It's true. It's a fact. We are related, but as you, as you mentioned, distantly. My father and the king are obviously the same generation and their grandfathers were cousins. <laughs> so it's far, it's far. Mm. But do you think it sh shifts people's perception of you as someone that's, that's come into all these opportunities from privilege? I wish it wouldn't, but um, it probably does, yeah. Was entrepreneurship around you when you were growing up? Where did you get this kind of drive within you to, to want to, to pursue your own thing? Yeah, I mean, both my parents had their own businesses when I was growing up. So I think I've, I've been growing up with entrepreneurship around me. Uh, they didn't really have, you know, startup or tech startup in that sense that we're talking about it today. But I did see, like, I think both sides of it, like the the hard struggle uh, for my parents when they started off and it didn't really go that well. And also, w once it actually started going well for their companies, uh, the kind of freedom that that provided our family. So I think that was a huge inspiration for me, yeah. You mentioned you didn't want to go into consulting or banking, so clearly that's something that within your peer group was quite popular. Mm -hmm. What did people think um, when, you know, of just, just one year of proper work experience, you, you quit to do your own thing so early? I think people in general were surprised, a little bit intrigued to see how it would go. They thought it was a huge risk, but overall I also felt that they were happy for me because I think they saw that I really wanted to do this. Obviously having a financial cushion helps in terms of risk-taking, but do you think you're somebody that, that has a stronger tendency to, to risks than others? I don't know. I think it depends a little bit about, you know, your values. And certainty for me is not really to have like a job where I go every day and know what to do. For me, certainty, what I realized is actually knowing that I can control my life and, you know, control my time. And I didn't really feel that I grew or like was, I wasn't really challenged in the sense that I wanted to and I didn't really feel that I contributed or created something of value at Chanel and that's why I wasn't happy. So for me, like entrepreneurship is like the ultimate way of both feeling, you know, huge growth all the time. Um, you're always out of your comfort zone, but at the same time making me feel certain. When you talk about freedom, I mean, how does that manifest itself in your life? I mean, there's so many different perceptions of entrepreneurship, you know, people, you know, spending their days playing ping pong or working up until four o'clock in the morning every night. Um, so how do you, 
how do you integrate work in, into your life when you are managing a, a very quickly expanding company? Uh, to be honest, right now, I think I'm like the worst example of work-life balance. Um, it's hard for me to distinguish what's my life and what's karma, which I'm not sure if that's something to recommend, but also it's also what I love about what I'm doing. Like I'm very passionate and I'm more or less like obsessed with my company. And I think that's, you know, that's both a curse, but also that's one of my strengths as well. And I've never felt more alive than I do doing what I do right now. Um, how do you continue to stay inspired in a world where you're clearly working round the clock? Who do you speak to? Where do you get your advice from? Mm, good question. You know, to keep inspired is... I, I always need to, um, every now and then, get out of my comfort zone. Because I do... You know, I, I thrive in an environment where it's a combination of certainty and uncertainty. So I love uh, going for things when I don't really know the outcome. Um, in terms of who I speak to for advice, it differs quite a lot, to be honest. I don't have one go-to person. I've noticed that a lot of people have a lot of brilliant things to say. So I try to speak to as many people as possible, to be honest, because in order, when I do that, I'm also able to stress test my opinions more, uh, which I don't think I did as much when I was younger. And today when I think that I stress test my opinions a bit more it's 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 actually helping me feeling more secure about my decisions what would your advice be to someone in that corporate job that's looking to branch out and do their own thing start in some sense and that could mean a thousand things you need to find your own way or what you're comfortable with for me when I started pop fruits for example I decided that I'm okay with losing all my savings but not more than that I don't want to be in a situation where I have debts. So that's what's like, that was my bottom line. And I also decided like, okay, so if this goes to shit, which it probably will, what will I do? And then I had like, you know, plan B, I will do this and that and that to survive. And then I was okay with taking the risk because I knew like the worst case scenario is something that I know I can live with and something I can come back from. So that would be a, that would be a suggestion. I usually say like play the whole movie like a lot of the times when I speak to people who want to start something but haven't I think it's like they haven't really questioned okay but what what does this worst case really mean and would that be so terrible like would it mean that you would die and then it's like no no okay so so what would you do and then they usually know what to do so if you want to start a company I think there's always a way but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you have to quit your corporate job you could start small if that's more suitable for you. That's it for now, but we'll be back next week with the last episode of Season 3. So now is a great time to tell us what you think of the show, leave a comment on iTunes or send us a message on Facebook. All interviewees featured on the Stockholmer are independently selected. Support for this episode comes from Move to Stockholm, and this week's guest was Elsa Bernadotte. The podcast is produced with sound assistance from Benoit Derrière, music by Simeon Ghost, logo design by Richard Stevens, and hosted by me, Maddie Savage. Music